This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Um, this is your first time here at Hill City. My name is John Wagler, and I'm part of this team. I'm grateful that you're here and hope that Hill City becomes a place that you can uh, call home. Uh, this is a big Sunday for us because this is the start of our share offering. Yeah, which is exciting. And um, over the, we've been, we started this in 2015, and uh, over the course of this time period, we've been able to give away about 1.7 million just of this offering. And so um, I'll talk more about that at the end of uh, the service, but we're in week number 10 of this Revelation series, and uh, we've got four weeks left. Can you guys do four more weeks of Revelation? Is that, that's good. And so uh, we've got four weeks left in Revelation, and so um, the main phrase that we've been talking about in this series, if you haven't been with us, um, is simply this, to stay grounded, the gospel works. All right, stay grounded, the gospel works. And so that's probably the only thing you'll actually remember from the series, but um, it's actually the most important phrase because John continuously brings us back to this. He's like, man, just stay grounded. I know there's a lot going on, but stay grounded, the gospel works. Stay grounded, the gospel works. And, uh, and so even in our current context, it's like, man, you look and see what happens in Israel and Palestine right now. It's like, no, nope, stay grounded, the gospel works. You see what's happening with Biden and Trump. Stay grounded, the gospel works. You see what's happening in the casino in Richmond for the loving Lord. Um, uh, like, um, stay grounded, uh, the gospel uh, works, right? Um, it's important to keep uh, coming back to this, to stay grounded, the gospel works. And, and then there's something that becomes, we become witness to that uh, reality. Um, this letter that John uh, was writing um, uh, is the last book in the Bible. And so what we've done is we started in the beginning, then went to the end, then went back to the beginning and, and looked at the, the seven letters to the churches. And now we're going to move into what is actually the most pivotal point of the entire book. And so we're going to get through two chapters today. It worked and it's crazy because um, usually I do like 10 verses. So, um, and it worked in the first service. So hopefully we'll have my time constraints here. Um, but uh, chapters four and chapter five of Revelation are this big pivot point. And you'll see uh, why uh, in, in one particular, the language really shifts. That's really important for us to take in and what we concentrate on. Um, but this really moves us. If we, uh, there's a lot about Revelation that we can't figure out or don't know because of, of some of the imagery. But um, this is actually one section where uh, it's really important that we see what John's trying to do here because what it does is it enables us to, to take in some of the other things that are coming. And so we're going to get in some of the, the imagery uh, that some people kind of stay away from typically in this book, but we're going to dive right in. But before we get to that, I want to highlight a few things um, that are just good to know um, as we kind of entertain this because maybe you're just hopping in today or not familiar with some of this stuff. But first thing is this, is there was a biblical cosmos that, um, that how people took in information. So I'm going to draw it out. And I've just, so if you guys have been here for a while, you've seen me do this. And typically it ends up looking like a taco for some reason. But um, here's, here's what you see, kind of the, the biblical landscape of how people just saw the cosmos and what was going on. Um, water, all right, so water was... Uh, always represented chaos, all right? So you'll see throughout the Bible some things when Jesus comes the water or when the Spirit hovers over the waters or anything around water. Um, water always represented chaos, okay? And so how people thought things came to be from a biblical standpoint was there was water and then there was land that came on top of that water. And then what they believe off of that is that over that land was this thing called the rakia. And you kind of can get this, right? Like uh, when you look outside, it looks like a dome. 
And so they, they thought there was this dome. And then uh, up in this dome, like, there were all these stars, right? And they believed that those stars were all heavenly hosts, um, that they were spiritual beings that were monitoring everything that was going on everywhere that you could see. Um, underneath, um, underneath the water were these, these pillars, all right? But on top of the, on top of the rakia, they believed that there was this water up there. Now, you can understand why they would think that because they're seeing this dome and then water comes out of it and they're like, well, there must be water up there, right? And so, um, so they would believe these portals would open up and then above the portal were um, a, a throne of some kind. And on that throne, and depending on the belief system, whether it was Babylonian or Egyptian, or in this case, um, uh, the Hebrew system, uh, it, they believed that uh, there was either one God, which is what obviously the Hebrews believed, the Israelites believed, um, or they would say, man, there were tons of thrones, okay, up there, and there were all these gods up there. And, and this is the way that people, like, that was the framework they were working off of, all right? Those things become important because when you read a book like Revelation, uh, and you can do this actually with any of the, the books of the Bible, but you see, like, some of the language that they're using is pulling from this, all right? So that's the first thing that's important. Uh, second thing, number seven uh, means completion, all right? So you'll see numbers a lot. Number 12 uh, represents the 12 tribes of Israel, also the 12 disciples, which kind of bookend the Bible and uh, are the start of the church. Uh, we've got uh, the Bible was written within a cultural context, not outside of it. Um, sometimes people try and pick at the Bible a little bit on cultural things. I'm like, they're writing to what they knew in their cultural context, right? Um, Bible is not, is not the only historical religious writings that wrestle with how and why things are the way they are. That's important um, because some of the language, and, and I'll talk a little bit about Domitian here today, who was the governor uh, of Rome uh, when this was written. It becomes important because some of the things that are being said, what John is doing is he's basically kind of poking fun at some of the things in the ways that people believed. And he's like, man, you guys thought it was this way, but I'm telling you it's this way. And so he's got a lot of language like that in there. Um, there are over 500 plus hyperlinks to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation alone. So um, it's important to understand that. Uh, Revelation is aggressive against empires, an empire way of thinking. That is important because guess what? You live in a what? There you go. Uh, and then there's this cre uh, creation and decreation uh, motif. Now, this is found all throughout Scripture as well, um, but it's really like particularly interesting uh, throughout uh, Revelation. And here's what that can look like. So creation, you kind of see here, is like light, life, kingdom of God, unity, order. Decreation elements are darkness, death, empire, division, and chaos. And so those are the familiar themes that you'll, you'll see. And uh, this happens, again, a lot in Scripture. Uh, and you'll see like, oh, this is creation that brings life. This is decreation that takes uh, away from him. Got it? Got it. All right. Let's dig in. Revelation chapter 4. It says this, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And again, uh, this idea of a door is a very familiar thing to us because in the Bible what it's saying is there's this very thin line between heaven and earth. And all you got to do is open the door. Yeah. And so there's, there's, there's some components there that's important for us. And, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So he's building this drama. Again, the book of Revelation would have been typically performed for people, okay? So uh, it's building this drama, like who is on the throne, right? It's like this question that's happening in it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald circle uh, encircled the throne. So you have this throne that's there, and you got this rainbow that encircles it. And I'll show you some artwork of some people here in just a minute of how they picture this. Um, but then uh, they, they have this jasper and, and ruby. Now, jasper and ruby actually goes back to this story um, in Exodus. And so they had these people called the high priests. And so these high priests were folks that they were the only ones that led into certain parts of the temple and, and near the Holy of Holies into the presence of God. And they would wear these breastplates. And on their breastplates would be jasper and ruby were two of the, the, the jewels that were on there. There are other things as well. But they're, they're, they're kind of, uh, what John is doing is trying to get the listener to be like, hey, do you remember the high priest? Do you remember getting the presence of God? Like, this is what's happening. Like, it's representing to be in this, this complete uh, presence of God. And then the rainbow. Um, even if you're not familiar with your Bible, you've probably heard the story of who in the ark? Noah, Noah right? And at the end of that story, and I know the, um, the rainbow, and, and how many of you guys have seen a rainbow recently? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you're like, ooh, look at that rainbow. Sometimes you just let it go, whatever. And I know that the rainbow uh, culturally has gotten socially, and it, and it means something different. But, but really what the rainbow is supposed to mean is about the promise and the covenant of God, all right? That he saves, that um, he'll bring freedom, that uh, he'll create life, right? Like it's, it's this promise and this covenant of God. So when we see that, that's what's supposed to happen. An emerald, even that jewel itself, is supposed to represent life. So this is like a rainbow of life, okay? So this is what's happening. Like John's seeing all of this, all right? Now, it's pretty interesting about John in this moment, in this vision, He's not seeing something in the future. What he's seeing is in the present day for him and in the present day right now, he's getting like a behind the scenes look at what's going on. This is why it's such a big deal. And sometimes we think, oh, it's, we're disconnected from, God's disconnected from all this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. John gets this glimpse of like, this is what's actually happening behind the scenes. And so it continues on in verse four. It says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in what? And had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of what? And rumblings and peals of? In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God. What does seven mean again? So it's like the completion of his spirit. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. So remember in this part where I said that, what did, what did water represent? Chaos. Chaos. But in the presence of God, it's like a sea of glass. And so it's this moment like, oh, John's like seeing like what this is supposed to be like. It's this sea of glass. And, and then he sees the, the spirit, the, the complete spirit of, of God. And then um, we've got these elders that are there, right, representing the church and the disciples. And, and all this stuff is, is going on uh, in this moment. But here's what's actually maybe a little bit more interesting. This is Domitian. It's bizarre that they can actually make it look real now. But um, so this is Domitian. He was the governor uh, of Rome during this time. And he was an awful man. He was, he was a monster, like killing some of his sons and, and diff doing different things. He was just a horrible, horrible man. Um, but he was also kind of smart and like in how he manipulated people, how he got to power, how he kept power and everything. He had certain things happen to him in his life. Um, I shared this, I think it was the first week, I shared how his son was killed early, or he died early on. And typically that would have meant like the gods were against you, but he somehow flipped the script and the narrative, put his son on a coin with the seven stars. We've seen seven stars before, but he put his son on a coin with seven stars around it, like lording over other gods. 
And all of a sudden I'm thinking, whoa, he must be the son of God. So Domitian's interesting. He would have these people, these 24 elders would walk with him everywhere he would go. And uh, they were dressed in white and they would uh, oftentimes carry these libations, they were called, and these bowls. And they would pour out these things in front of him. And then uh, Domitian uh, required that these people would call him the Lord our God. So you're going to see some of this language. Like, uh, again, as I read this, you're going to see like, oh, John is, is, has this vision, but this vision's also really poking at the empire and really poking what real power actually is. And so Domitian was this monster of a man, and I just want you to just know that because you're going to start seeing some language. You're going to be like, mm, now I get what John is actually doing here. Continues, and it says, in the center, that's incredibly important. We just sang, what do we sing is at the center? Hmm. Around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, which represents just all the um, wild animals and the king of those. The second was like an ox, which represents all the domestic animals. The third had a face like a man, which represents all of creation and humanity. The fourth was like a flying eagle, um, which represents all the birds, right? It does not represent America, okay? Um, And so um, each of the four living creatures, so just representing creation, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, and even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This phrase right here was actually said for Zeus in Greek mythology. But here's John, he's flipping it. And he's like, you guys think it's about Zeus. I'm telling you, it's about who the one who's at the center, who's on the throne. And if you miss it, you miss it. And it reshapes everything. And so John's drawing their attention um, into this. Let me show you a little bit of artwork here so you guys can see this. So with Revelation, obviously, um, the imagination is part of this. So one of the reasons that it's written in this form, one of, not the only, one of the reasons is to stoke our imagination. Like if everything was just kind of written in the same way, like if everything was just like Proverbs, it would be boring after a little bit right? So what, what Revelation is doing is trying to get our imagination going. This is why so much incredible artwork has come out of the book of Revelation. Um, and so it's trying to get your imagination going so you don't just settle on, um, well, this is just the way thing, things are. Like so often I see Christians like getting this, this mindset of like, oh, woe is me. Or like they look at some of the stuff that's happening in culture and like, well, it's all going to hell, I guess. And I'm like, this is not the way we're supposed to be. Like, our imaginations should be running wild. Because guess what? You sit, we serve and worship a God who sits on the throne. We can't forget that. This is what John, this is why this is like the pivotal point of the letter. He's like, don't forget this. Don't, and they're like, look what Domitian's doing. Look at all the stuff that's happening. It was incredible persecution by this man. It's like, look at all these things that are happening. And he's like, don't forget who sits on the throne. Don't forget who's at the center. It's like, it keeps your imagination going. So people have done a lot of artwork, like William Blake or Albert Dewar, who did this one, which is one of the more famous ones, just around uh, the throne and what it could look like. And again, as you begin to see the pictures, you're like, man, this is like a crazy vision, right? And uh, probably the most famous one is this one. And, uh, but it's just wild, because like there's the centering point of everything. And around that, everything is worshiping it. It's falling down to it. It's, it's like, it's aware of the power that's on the throne. 
and it stokes our imaginations. And then um, the one part too where it talks about all creation is worshiping. And it's, it's this idea of when we step into the beauty of all creation, we see who God is. Um, did you guys see the sky this week? Multiple days this week. It was insane, right? It was like God was just like showing off all week. And, uh, and when we see things like that, we're drawn to the, the beauty of, of, of God's creative order. It's, it stokes something inside of us, right? And so we see, oh, like the, the, the beauty of who God is, like it, it shows us like who he is. And you might be saying like, yeah, but not everything in creation is beautiful, right? Like a mosquito or a snake or we'll talk about snakes actually maybe next week. Um, but uh, um, here's, the, here's the way I think about it with, with God. It's simply this, that the beauty of creation points to who God is and the brokenness points to what he will do. Meaning we can see the brokenness of creation, whether that's through sin or whatever. And uh, we see the brokenness and we're like, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be. But when I know it's beauty and the power of God on its throne that allows me to say, keep my imagination, that guess what? God's going to do something. He's going to do something. If, if we just are willing to imagine with him and go along this journey, make sure that we stay centered. Like what's in the center? Like that becomes so critical. John continues on. He says this. Whenever the, living creatures, uh, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before him, right? So here's what they're saying. They are surrendering. Their posture is one of, man, I have no, I have no other option but just to get down. Because they're like, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to do in this moment, right? That's their posture. That's their posture. And they say, they lay their crowns before the throne. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they created, they have uh, their being. And so what John is doing is trying to bring us back. What is at the center? He's calling out all the other, like, power things, right? But he's, he's, he's trying to get you and I to like be like, what is at the center? What is at the center of your life? Whatever is at the center of your life is what you will worship. Yeah. Why? Because that's what like centers your thoughts, it centers your words, it centers your action, it centers your bank account, it centers your time, it centers how you see the world around you, it centers your imagination, whether you have one or not, it centers your emotions, it centers your relationships. The center is everything. So whatever is at the center, like, shapes everything. And the question I think that we've got to wrestle with in the midst of this is this. What is at the center of your worship? Everyone in this room worships something. You have to. The sad part is, is sometimes it's ourselves because we put ourselves at the center. Like, even that phrasing, oh, you're so self-centered. Like, think about what you're saying in that moment. You're putting yourself as the focus of worship. And so it, it begins to like, oh, well, if it's all about me, then I'm worshiping myself and who I am. And so I live my life out that way. It, you can have a lot of different gods, right? A lot of things can kind of come in and out of the center. But can you imagine, just for a second, can you imagine? And no one in, in this room, nobody, um, is perfect at this. But can you imagine if Jesus was at the center 100% of the time. Just process that. 
that everything in your life 100% of the time flowed through Jesus. Can you imagine what your mindset would change? How many of you guys have um, said something you regretted recently? Like tone, you know, whatever. Like if your wife or husband's next to you, you're like, mm-hmm. Right, like, you know, but like, but like you, you said something you regret. If Jesus was at the center, you wouldn't have done it. Yeah. You, you wouldn't have. The bitterness or judgment when Jesus is at the center, it, it's not there. Again, we're, no one's perfect at this. We all can come in and out of this. But the point is what John's trying to be is like, man, when Jesus is at the center, it, it orients us in a way that we, we want to worship and, and, and our posture is different. We're willing to lay down our crowns, lay down what we think we've achieved. And it's like, no, I'm laying that all down because what other thing would I do in the presence of God? It changes how we begin to see everything at the center of our lives. And then the other thing that we see here is that singing is, there's something transcendent about singing, about singing. So um, whether you can sing or not, it doesn't matter. There's something transcendent about singing. You guys know when you hear your favorite song, it gets you hype, hype, whatever that song is, right? It doesn't matter. Everyone's got different favorite songs in this room. But when you hear it, like something like, it, it drives something inside of you. Um, there's something about singing that is transcendent. And what we see here is there's something that's singing that's transcendent of heaven and earth. We'll also see prayer is the same way. That there's something transcendent about our singing that when, um, in, in one of the songs this morning, like it was just the voices singing in the room. And again, I've said this before, but like the majority of the people in the room, we cannot sing. <laughs> but when everyone sings together, it's, it's like angelic. Yeah. It's, like, it's like God designed it to be that way to take a bunch of people who can't do something on their own, but when they do it together with a centering component on the reality and the truth of Jesus, it changes the transcendence of it and comes from earth back up to heaven and back down to us. And it, it's transcendent. It's like when you're in a bad mood and you come into church and you're hurting in pain and we start singing and you start weeping, that's not happening just by accident. There's something transcendent that God does through singing. And that's why we see so much of that. We're like, all hail King Jesus. Do you, what, do you know what you're saying in that moment? It's, I'm going to lay down my crown and have a posture of being like, I don't know what else to do, but to all hail King Jesus. It's transcendent. It changes things. Revelation chapter 5 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides with, seals, with seven seals. I forgot to mention this about Domitian. He always carried a scroll in his hand. He walked around a scroll all the time. And the scroll is significant because um, if someone were to read a scroll, they were proclaiming something, whether something that was to come or something that has been. But there's a proclamation that was going to happen. And so Domitian would always carry a scroll because it, it was like, I have authority in here. And so we see this language starts to happen that, hmm, there's this scroll here. And we'll start seeing that, like, man, no one can open the scroll. Watch this. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth, meaning even those that aren't even here anymore, could open the scroll and even look inside of it. So he's saying this, You think you have power, but you really don't. And what he's trying to, again, it's the centering point. It's like, stop putting yourself in the center. You're, you're, you're not as big of a deal as you think you are. So whoever the, I don't know who the most influential person in the room is. Oh, sorry, the governor was here this week. They had, a, they had an event, wonderful event. Governor's a super good dude. And 
I think that's respectful. But he's like, uh, um, he's, he's a really nice man. And uh, uh, he was here. And, and guess what? As much power as he has in our state of Virginia, he has no power in the scheme of the heavens and earth. None. And this is a, he loves Jesus, but he has no power. He cannot open the scroll. The president, no power. Like it just, like, Look, it's like, man, you guys think you have power, but you, like in the scheme of heavens and earth, like nothing, nothing. No one can do it. And so John, in response, he weeps. He's like, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the, see the what? Of the tribe of Judah. And people are like, yes, Jesus, the lion, right? That's what the, kind of think. But I want to show you why this chapter is so important. The Lion of the Tribe of Judah, which is referring back to the story in Genesis 49, and then the Root of David, which is from 2 Samuel uh, 7, uh, which is saying that the Messiah is going to come from Judah, the Lion of Judah, or the Lion or the Root of Jesse. His triumph. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So who's the Messiah? Jesus, right? Jesus is. He's like, He's the only one who, opens, who can open the scroll. He's the only one who can make this proclamation of what has happened and what is to come. Just Jesus. But what about this other guy? Just Jesus. What about this other thing? Just Jesus. Why? Because who is at the center? Jesus. He continues on here. He says, then I saw the lamb. That's different this lamb becomes a different image. And it's like, what about the power and the victory of a, of a lion? Like when we think of a lamb, we don't think like, ah, oh, yeah. Give me the, bring on the lambs, right? We don't ever think of that. But this language is actually unbelievably important on how we see the rest of the revelation. I mean, it's unbelievably important. If you just stuck with the lion, it takes you in a certain direction. But if you go to the lamb, it takes you in a whole other direction. It says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been what? Standing at the center of the throne. Oh, this is at the center. Encircled by the four living creatures, all of creation, all of the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, meaning seven horns is for power. And what does seven mean again? Complete power and complete sight awareness of what's going on which are the seven spirits, again, the completion of the presence of God sent out into all the earth. So through the slain and the blood of the lamb, you can see everything, know everything, ultimate power, um, ultimate presence of God. Through the blood of the lamb, which is who on a cross. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So I, and then it says this. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. I'll get to that in a second. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your what? You purchased, uh, you purchased for God persons from every tribe language, people, and nation. Here's a rendering of what the lamb, if you need a Halloween costume. Um, there's like a, <laughs> don't do that, it'd be super sacrilegious. Um, like the, uh, 
So here's like a picture of like, you know, seven horns and the, and the seven uh, eyes. What do you see on his neck? Blood. You see the blood that's on his neck. This idea of blood becomes incredibly important. It's the blood that is for the forgiveness of sin. It's the blood that brings us hope. It's the, it's the blood that becomes so prevalent in this language. And the shift from the lion to the lamb is so important. You see, with this blood and with the lamb, if you just stuck in the lion category, you would think violence and power and authority crush our enemies, right? Devour anything in our path. But instead, the lion only gets its victory through what? The lamb. And the lamb is what was slain. The lamb is what is sacrificed. And so it takes this vision and it's like, man, you think it's about violence and power and might and strength and all these things. It's like, no, no, no. All of those things, the completion of the power, the completion of how we're supposed to see things, the completion of the presence of God is only through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so it changes everything. If you miss this point, you'll start translating everything into, like, um, how many guys have read the Left Behind books or heard of them? I'm sorry. There's, um, uh, it's not all bad, but there's a lot of bad in there. And um, part of it is because it's insanely political, but part of it is it creates this language that is really centered a lot around violence and the killing of people. That is not what happens in Revelation. Even in the Battle of Armageddon, which we'll get to uh, at the end, um, the battle of Armageddon, people are like, yeah, like remember in the battle when Jesus comes back again and all this other stuff and, he, and he'd come and like kill up him. He's not. There's actually no battle that happens. There's no war. You know why? He already has blood on him because he already did it on the cross. The victory is already there. And it says he comes with a sword, but it's coming out of his mouth, which just represents his words of who he is. And so it changes how we think about everything. And we realize, man, there's a bigger story to be told in all of this. There's something else that, that's going on. And man, this blood language. We're going to sing um, some songs in just a minute here um, that center all around blood. And we don't normally do stuff like that because if you're visiting, you're coming to church for the first time, you're like, why are we singing about blood? Right? It doesn't make sense. It's weird. And all those. But you need context to understand these things. Um, and we're, we're going to do that in a second. But the blood of the Lamb... The blood of Christ becomes unbelievably important. The language of it, the understanding of it, the context of it, and what it means. It points back to things in the Old Testament with Passover and things that happened back then uh, in the temple and then uh, into the future what this means. And so it's an incredibly pivotal moment when he starts and keeps talking about uh, the lamb. And you can't miss it. If you miss this part, you miss the whole thing. He continues on. He says this. You have made them to be king. Actually, you know what? I forgot a part. This part. Your prayers. Sometimes, we'll see it in another section. I think it's Revelation 8, where it talks about the bowls of prayers in heaven. And that there, our prayers get stored up. It's an incredible imagery. Um, sometimes we, we think our prayers don't matter, but they're getting stored up in heaven. And there's this pouring out of how God interacts between heaven and earth. There's this way that when he talks about become kingdoms, uh, become uh, the priests of the kingdom and stuff like that, it's like, man, we're, we're pouring out these prayers. There's something transcendent about our prayers. Like when we have prayer after service for people, it's like, man, there's something transcendent that's going on right there. 
when uh, we have times where we're saying like there's something significant happening in our world, whether what's happening in Israel or like you, we have a responsibility to pray for those things because it's something that's getting stored up. There's some kind of transcendent relationship with heaven and earth that matters in our prayers. It shifts us personally, but there's something that happens communally. It can move God in certain ways when he sees the prayers of his people. And so it's an understatement of something with our prayers and don't ever neglect your prayers. So when someone's like, man, prayer doesn't do anything, I'm like, then you don't know your Bible. You don't know how God talks about it. You don't know how um, the history of prayer and what it started. Every revival movement in the history of Christianity started with prayer. The second thing that followed was singing. There's something transcendent with both of those things that deeply matter. All right, on to the last part. Here's what he says. Like when we enter, we have Jesus at the center of all of this and we understand the, the, the blood of the, the lamb that was slain. It's like when that becomes our focus point, that is our worship, that is our posture. It's like you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice. Again, that's not just future. It's like in the present when, when God's people get into this space where he is at the center. When Christ is at the center, we understand this idea of what his blood on the cross means for us. It's like, man, our posture is in the right place, and our worship is centered on the right things. It's like the kingdom of God gets built on this earth. And he continues on, he says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne uh, and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. And they were in a loud voice and they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. This is the song they sing. Then I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the sea, here we go with the water again, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor, glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, meaning so be it. Let it be so. This is true. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is the posture of the people who know the reality and the truth of Jesus. It centers everything. And so this becomes our centering point. You guys can come back up. We aren't God. We aren't Jesus. We can't save people, but we can serve them. We can't deliver people from evil, but we, we can be a witness to what is good. We can't rid the world of, green, but we, of greed, but we can exemplify the wonder of generosity. We can't be God, but we can live out his character. We are not spectators. We are participators in all of this. Yes. We can be people of creation or decreation. And this is what John is pushing us towards. It's like, what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? What's at the center of your life? Because it matters. I'm going to end with this quote from Eugene Peterson, who's this incredible theologian. He said this, We worship so that we live in response to and from the, what, center, the living God. Failure to worship consigns us to a life of spasms and jerks, and we all know this feeling. At the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, 
there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness, an epidemic in this world, with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. Let's you guys bow your heads. So God, we, um, we want you at the center of all of this. That's where we find hope. That's where we find freedom. That's where we find peace. That's where we find purpose. But it doesn't happen until we're willing to lay down our crowns and have the right posture towards you. And so, um, God, I just pray that, um, man, if we ever try and put anything else on the throne, that there's a deep conviction and sensitivity for us to realize I gotta come back to what needs to be at the center because I'm off a little bit here. And through that, God, we experience the fullness of life that you desire for us. And give this to you in your name we pray, everyone said. Amen. Uh, have a seat for just a second. Um, I wanted to... Uh, okay. Um, so this is share offering. And so, as I said earlier, we've, we've done this, you know, for, since 2015. And, uh, and what we do, if you're not familiar with what we do around this, is we ask everyone to give one day's wage. And, uh, and so uh, it's pretty simple. And if we can show the, the one slide on my slides, I know we're going to switch back and forth here for a second. Um, but this is just what that looks like uh, for whatever salary range you're in as a person or um, as a family. And uh, we take all this money. This is above and beyond what we normally give. So this is like a sacrificial offering. And we take every penny that's designated for share, and we give it all away to partners and uh, throughout the community. And there's a lot of local work that happens, and then there's some international work. And a lot of our partners, they do so much work with next, the next generation coming up uh, in particular. Uh, and we concentrate on that piece. But these partners are incredible. So if we can show the partners as, as well. And um, these partners are amazing. We've worked with several of them through um, the last um, several years. And so you'll see the, the list of them that there's a wide range of things that are happening, but they're really centered around the next gen of, of people um, culturally and uh, age-wise as well. You see a lot of things that um, have to do with foster care or uh, human trafficking, stopping human trafficking, or um, those that are under-resourced in different parts of our city, and there's some international things uh, as well. Um, but I want you to hear from one of our partners, um, Margot, uh, who she leads an organization uh, called Lydia House International, and they've been our partner here for a couple of years. And I want you to see this video of what your generosity through the share offering has done over in Liberia. Lydia House International was started several years ago in partnership with local leaders in Liberia, West Africa. And they had a vision from the Lord, really, to empower their whole community by raising up women and children and improving their position in society. And they knew that if we could build this residence for them, it would give them a safe place to heal from trauma and exploitation that most of them have experienced. It would protect their children from having that happen to them and repeating those generational cycles. And it would be a place where these women could heal in the love of Jesus, but then be strengthened to become leaders and lead the next generation in their communities. And the share offering has been absolutely crucial to the work that we've done. There would 
be no Lydia House if we had not received what we've received from the SHARE offering. We were able to empower these ladies to get the education that they need and get started on that track. We were also able to build an entire residential facility in Liberia, um, which was completed last year. And then we were able to furnish that building with everything needed for women and their children to come live there. We were able to get materials that they needed to complete their education and do vocational training. And then this summer, I'm happy to say that we were able to open our doors and welcome our first residents and their children. And a lot of that was because of the support of Hill City and the SHARE offering. This year, as a result of your generosity through the SHARE offering, what we're hoping to accomplish is to be able to admit at least three more women and their children to Lydia House, and that would give them the ability to go through a full track and receive their education. And in addition, I'm happy to say that their young children are also going to be put in school for the first time. So we will break that cycle of illiteracy, opening our doors and allowing these women and their children to come stay here not only provides them healing and a safe place, it turns them around 100% because suddenly when we open the doors to education, when they receive vocational training, when they're able to go out independently and earn their own income and raise their children to go to school and do the same thing as they're doing, suddenly their entire world has changed. They're protected, they're safe, and they're independent. They feel that they're earning their own way and that there's hope for them. That's one of the organizations, actually Margo's here, you'll probably see her walking around, but uh, one of the wonderful organizations that we work with and, and the difference that your generosity makes uh, through this offering. And so um, the QR code on your chairs, we'll send you there, so the one on the screen, and we'll send out a link and stuff too. And we'll also send out links to all the partners so you can learn more about them uh, throughout the week. Um, but this is such a wonderful like rallying point for our community. And, and literally like through this like one offering alone, will have this massive impact on tens of thousands of people um, throughout the city and uh, beyond. So thank you preemptively for your generosity and um, looking forward to see what comes in through everything. Uh, love you guys so much. Um, if you're new, we'd love to meet you. Um, or if you want to learn more about joining the team, there's folks there to talk to you. If you want prayer, there'll be people up here as well. Um, but you guys, thanks so much for being here today. Love you all. We'll see you next Sunday. <laughs>